All right. Well, good morning. It is uh, great to be back at Plum Creek Chapel and great to see everybody again after a wonderful trip to uh, Dallas and Houston. Uh, we are going to pick up with our study of what lies ahead. And I wanted to start by just making a couple of uh, announcements and kind of let you know where we're going from here through the end of the year. Um, we had uh, a little bit of a technical glitch last time we were in this series, which was two weeks ago. And I heard from a lot of people online uh, by email about it. And I sure apologize for that, but our, our microphone for live streaming went out after about 24 minutes. And so only half of it got recorded, which nobody in the building knew that. Um, but unfortunately, those that were live streaming or those that watched the videos uh, didn't uh, have the benefit of the full message. So um, we do want to kind of pick up where we left off a little bit and review some of that. Um, the material that we're going to be covering over the next couple of weeks to finish up Revelation uh, through chapter 16, through the sec you know, getting up to the second coming, which is our next topic, uh, is the same material that I've talked about in other uh, conferences recently. And sometimes that happens. You know, I'll speak at a conference and someone will come up afterwards and say, man, uh, we would love that. Can you come do that at our conference? And so these tend to go in waves like that. And so uh, this idea of one minute or one second before the second coming, uh, the details of leading up to that climactic moment in human history, uh, we've covered that in other venues recently. So if you are uh, either live streaming or if you're listening to our podcast, you'll notice some repetition of the material. But one of the things I love about our Sunday morning Bible study uh, here in Plum Creek is that it does tend to go different directions. We get a lot of questions and you uh, touch on things because it's a little bit more interactive than it would be at a, at a conference. So even though it's some of the same material, I think it'll be helpful for those who listen outside of our immediate uh, audience in-house here uh, as well. But I did want to let you know that I am aware that some of this is going to sound vaguely familiar as we kind of go, go through all of this. Um, so, uh, and of course, everything we're covering is in the book, What Lies Ahead, which we have copies of at the back, or you can get it online at notbyworks.org at our online store. Uh, but just to give you a little bit of a roadmap, we're, we're going to camp out in Revelation a little bit longer, touch on some of the supplemental information there, and then I want to get to the second coming and talk about all that takes place in that moment. And there are a number of passages that talk about that in Scripture, of course, many in the Old Testament, uh, because the Old Testament, Testament kind of conflates the, new, the first coming and second coming of Christ in one event. So we learn a lot about what will happen when he comes to take the throne and uh, inaugurate the long-awaited Messianic kingdom. But then, of course, the New Testament as well. The book of Revelation describes that, that actual moment in Revelation 19. Jesus describes it in detail in his Olivet Discourse of what it will be like when he comes back. And we have several other references as well. So we'll get to the second coming. Then we're going to talk about the millennium and what life will be like on earth when Christ does take the throne. And look at a lot of the characteristics that are given by the Old Testament prophets of the uniqueness of that time. So I uh, just wanted to remind you about that. A couple other quick announcements. Uh, we resume our midweek study. The live stream is at 6 o'clock Mountain Time uh, on how to read and understand the Bible. So after a couple of break, weeks of break or several weeks of break, we're going to pick that back up. Really looking forward to that this Wednesday. And then I just posted, this article will come out actually Thursday to our Plum Creek Chapel uh, list. It went out uh, this weekend to our Not By Works uh, distribution list. But my latest uh, devotional article is called The Greatest Reset. 
And in it, I talk about uh, a little bit of review for those of you that watched our What in the World is Going On series, but I talk about Klaus Schwab and the Great Reset and the World Economic Forum and all that those Satanists are trying to do to usher in a one-world system. But then I lead into that uh, by looking at some passages from uh, Isaiah and Daniel and talking about how the greatest reset ever is the one that will happen when Christ comes back and makes all things new. So it's a short article. You can read it in three or four minutes. I hope you'll take the time to check that out. So we are continuing our look at the tribulation. We've uh, completed, uh, well, we've completed the seal and trumpet judgments. We're going to uh, finish up with the bowls and some of the other things that happened during that seven-year period. And I thought I would introduce it this morning by reading a short email that I got. And this is the kind of email I get from time to time. Thankfully, not too many, but, you know, you do sometimes get to hear from uh, the positive, encouraging folks as well as the critical folks. And uh, I, I want to read this so that you'll understand why this topic is so important, because there's a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding about the end times in Scripture. Remember, uh, and I've said this many times, but it bears repeating, that 16% of what is contained in the Bible pertains to unfulfilled future prophecy. So, you know, if you, if you only study stuff about the here and the now and you neglect the study of the end times, it's basically like being a B-minus student. Because if you got an 84, at least where I went to school, that was about a B-minus, possibly even a C. But the higher up you go in your master's and doctorate, then the grading scale becomes... You basically have to be perfect to get an A and slightly less perfect to get an A minus. But anyway, uh, at 84, you're talking a C plus, B minus. And if you're comfortable with that as a student of God's Word, more power to you. But if you want to strive for excellence and study the whole counsel of God, if you want to study 100% of what the Bible has to say, you need to study the end times. Uh, but even among those who study it, there's a great deal of confusion. So uh, this email, I didn't respond. I don't generally respond to... Uh, ridiculous criticism. I just don't have time, frankly. In fact, I'm still behind right now from this last week on responding to emails, but I uh, think everybody that follows Not By Works knows that if they reach out to us, I, they get a response every time, usually same day, unless I'm on the road, and then sometimes it takes a while. I'll flag them and I'll get back to them. So I'm almost caught up. I have about four or five more emails to respond to, uh, but these types of emails, they just get filed for future uh, use in times such as this, like this morning. But this uh, listener or viewer, I'm not sure if they watch us online or listen to podcasts, but it says, I admire the work you have done and the seemingly meticulous research you have put in historically, society, and societally, and biblically on your many series. So at this point, I'm thinking, wow, this is great. I'm stretching my arms to pat myself on the back. My head's getting bigger. This is one of those emails where someone's saying, great job, you know. But he says, most without fault, save one thing, the pre-trib rapture. It, listen to this. It is not only a false doctrine, but a doctrine of demons and a damnable heresy leading millions of Christians astray. So now I'm a hell-bound heretic, basically, is what he's saying. There is not a single shred of evidence in the Scriptures to back it except assumptions based on more assumptions. And beyond that, the arguments for it are replete with its own, I think he means their own hypocrisies. The Bible is crystal clear. 
the resurrection of the dead and the rapture of the living church and the second coming of Christ are the same event, and so forth and so on. I have enjoyed your teaching very much, as so much of it is biblically accurate. But because of the relentless pushing of this destructive heresy, I can't abide. So, well, I have talked about at length, if biblically, why the Bible teaches that the rapture will happen prior to the great day of the Lord's wrath, the tribulation, that it's a mystery only for the church. Paul calls it that explicitly. I've talked about how the, the church and Israel are distinct programs, and the rapture is the blessing for the church. The second coming involves Israel. Uh, and I make the case pretty solidly exegetically, uh, even though this particular writer uh, obviously doesn't agree. But I thought I would take a moment just to once again remind us of why this is the case. And it all comes down to how you study the Bible. It all comes down to correctly handling the Word of God, which is why we're doing that series on Wednesday nights. If you understand the Bible in its literal, grammatical, historical context, then you absolutely, of necessity, will arrive at a pre-tribulational understanding of the rapture and a distinction between Israel and the church. Uh, the first two chapters in the book, What Lies Ahead, deal with why should we study Bible prophecy and how do we understand Scripture in general. And it lays that foundation. But if you look at Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy, what we call the 490-year plan, God here basically lays out the plan that will lead us up to the kingdom. Uh, God has revealed over time multiple uh, steps in his plan of the ages, one of which was a 70-year captivity revealed through the prophet Jeremiah for Israel. When that 70-year plan was up, Daniel wants to know what comes next. And uh, so he prays in Daniel chapter 9, a beautiful prayer, asking God what's next in the plan. And God says, okay, when the 70-year captivity is up, the next phase will be 490 years. And then he explains how that 490 years will unfold. And uh, a, uh, the first 483 years of it are all about Israel. It begins with the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem and ends with Christ's first advent. And we've talked about this at length. We did a whole uh, session on this uh, many months ago. Uh, and I've got plenty of other material on it if you're interested in studying it at length. But the point is, to the day, we know when the decree occurred and we know how to count. Uh, I think most people do. And if you count forward 173,880 days, you arrive right at the day of the triumphal entry when Christ came to formally offer the kingdom. And of course, within days, he was crowned with thorns and not a king's crown. They did not uh, usher in the Messiah, they, uh, the kingdom. They rejected the Messiah. Uh, and all of this was predicted in the Old Testament, it's predicted right here in Daniel, that the Messiah would be cut off. <laughs> and uh, But the Bible also says he will come again. And then... After the 483 years, according to Daniel, there's a hard break. And he specifically mentions some things that are going to happen, such as the destruction of the temple, uh, such as before that, the, the cutting off of the Messiah, the crucifixion. But then he says at some unspecified point in the future, the final seven years will begin. The clock will start ticking on that final seven years of the 490-year plan. That clock will start when the Antichrist signs the peace treaty with Israel. That clearly has not happened yet. Uh, so we are living right now in that period of time between the 483rd, the end of the 483rd year and the beginning of the 484th year. It's called a gap of time. Uh, the New Testament, as God unfolds his revelation, begins to explain additional details about 
what will happen during this gap of time, what you see in green uh, on the screen there. Namely, the church age, which Paul very plainly explains as a mystery in Ephesians chapter 3. What is a mystery? A mystery is something previously undisclosed, now being revealed by God to mankind. So the church was never mentioned in the Old Testament. And to blur the, the, uh, the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ to establish the long-awaited kingdom in Israel is to blur this distinction and this program for the church uh, in Israel. And, and so uh, it, it couldn't be uh, really more clear that there's no blurring of that distinction. Um, the, uh, when, when we come to the New Testament, uh, Paul has a lot to say about the uniqueness of this age, Jew and Gentile in one body, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that unites us with Christ, being in Christ, uh, different purposes uh, to play in the coming uh, kingdom. Uh, there, you know, in, in the book, I talk about the purposes for Israel, the purposes for the church. Um, and uh, the church is made up of every believer from the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 until the rapture. And we have a unique role to play. In fact, in the kingdom, there will be three groups of people, and only three when all is said and done. Israel, the church, or bride of Christ, and the nations, or the Gentiles. All, of course, believers, but all playing a different role in the kingdom. And uh, Paul describes the importance of this distinction in Romans 9 through 11, uh, and again, uh, that's the reason, it's because the first 483 years of Daniel's prophecy have nothing to do with the church. Clearly, the final week uh, has nothing to do with the church as well. It's also called the time of Jacob's trouble. Well, who's Jacob? Israel. This full seven-year period, this final seven-year period, is all about Israel. Uh, the church is not part of that. We know this because twice in the book, the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul says that the church, the body of Christ, is not appointed to suffer wrath. And what is that final seven-year period? As you see on the screen there, it's called the day of the Lord's wrath. The wrath begins at the very beginning of the tribulation with the unveiling of the Antichrist. And he, the wrath of God is being poured out on earth. It's the, the overflowing scourge, the great day of the Lord's wrath, the seals of his wrath, the trumpets of his wrath, the bowls of his uh, wrath. And so, um, you know, I sometimes people will, will make the argument, and this particular person who emailed me did not make this argument, but I wouldn't be surprised if he feels this way. They'll try to suggest that the rapture and this notion that Christ is coming back in two phases, first for the church in the air, and then second all the way to the earth to establish the kingdom, they will say that that notion is a relatively novel notion, uh, only came up in the 1800s. That is patently, provably false. And I uh, recently did a podcast that where I traced all the way from the first century, every century, all the way up to the present day, and showed you, named their names, how different church fathers, ancient church fathers in each generation, are in writing, in print, on record, as believing in a two-phased return of Christ, once for the church and once to establish the kingdom. So that we don't prove our doctrine from history, we prove our doctrine from Scripture, but I only bring that up because some people naively and ignorantly say that, well, this has never been, you never find this anywhere in church history. It's all over church history. It wasn't the predominant view, 
because during the Dark Ages, the people couldn't read the Bible for themselves, and they were being uh, having a false doctrine of kingdom now theology through Roman Catholicism thrust down their throat. But nevertheless, a remnant is clear in every century that uh, the rapture and the second coming are two separate events. Yeah. What is Satan's purpose in, the question is, what is Satan's purpose in deceiving people today in this, in this regard, not understanding the distinction between the rapture and the second coming? Well, I can think of seven things that would aid him um, in, uh, you know, in promoting that false doctrine. One is downplaying the significance of the bride of Christ, because people that don't see that distinction believe in one people of God. The church has replaced Israel. It's called replacement theology or uh, sometimes called supersessionism. And so they believe that God is done with Israel. There's no future for Israel. Uh, and, and so there's just this kingdom now concept that the kingdom is spiritual. They may believe in a return of Christ, but most don't believe it'll be earthly. And the ones who do have real problems with their understanding of who's going to be in the kingdom, because if the rapture and the second coming happen at the second time, there's nobody in their physical body to inaugurate and, and, and inhabit the kingdom. Another thing I could think that would be handy uh, for Satan is just the uh, just in general this uh, failure to understand the scripture and uh, because they you know in a literal way which could lead all sorts of problems with the gospel and many other doctrines again it all comes down to your hermeneutic and this false understanding is just a symptom of a bad hermeneutic um, but I think that uh, because they ignore the national promises to Israel and say they are no more, it lends itself to this false view of God that says that God doesn't keep his covenant. God's not a promise-keeping God, a covenant-keeping God. And so it might be subtle, but it causes people to doubt God. Will God really do what he says? But when you read the Old Testament and you read the plain writings, say, of Jeremiah uh, 31 and Ezekiel 36, where it says, you know, has God forsaken us forever? No, as long as there's a sun and stars and moon in the heavens, God will keep his covenant. This is an unconditional promises, promise that made that was made to Abraham in Genesis 12, but it even was alluded to before that in Genesis 3, remember, when uh, God told the serpent that uh, the seed of the woman will crush his head. And uh, Jeff talked about that yesterday in our uh, Christmas event that we had here. So, I think there are a lot of, anytime you have false doctrine, it plays into Satan's hand because he is uh, the great deceiver and he doesn't walk in the truth. So we want to expose the truth. So with all due respect to whoever wrote that email, uh, they are buying into a, a, a false teaching that there's a whole group of people that teach that. They, they somehow see the rapture as a threat. Uh, they also tend to miss... Uh, just you know misunderstand the rapture and they create a straw man by saying that those who believe in a rapture teach that Christians will never have to suffer just because we think we won't be here during the rapture we know we won't the bible says that but nobody that believes in a rapture that i've ever seen or heard teaches that in fact if you read your bible it's clear that Christians will suffer uh, Paul says, all who desire to give, live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. Uh, you'll have tribulation. So all the doctrine of the rapture teaches is that prior to the 
final seven years of Daniel's 490-year prophecy, final to the prior to the to the time of Jacob's trouble, prior to this great day of the Lord's wrath, the Lord will rescue the church. We will experience the marriage of the Lamb and the bema judgment in heaven, while all hell is breaking loose on earth. And then we will come back with Christ as promised to rule and reign with Him uh, in the kingdom. Uh, so that doesn't mean that we won't have to suffer now. And indeed, for 2,000 years of church history, Christians have suffered unspeakable uh, persecution. So uh, that's simply not an accurate way to describe the pre-trib view. It simply teaches that the church is not Israel, and God will rescue the church before this great and terrible day of the Lord, and then He will deal with Israel once again. So if you think of uh, the world as a stage, God at any time in human history has various people center stage that are kind of his envoys, the ones that he is using to uh, advance uh, his message and his revelation at any time. And I was looking for a chart. I didn't, didn't put it in this presentation, unfortunately, but you've seen it before. So it started out with Adam was the key person on earth. And then, uh, you know, um, say Moses after that, or not Moses, Noah after that, and then Moses, and then Abraham, and, or Abraham and then Moses, I'll get it straight in a minute, uh, and then all the way through time. It, well, Israel was center stage. They were God's primary focus, uh, but they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Uh, they rejected the Messiah. God set them aside, and right now the church is center stage, but he has not permanently set aside Israel. They're going to come back. The church is going to exit the stage, and Israel's going to come back, and, and, and that will take us up to the time of the coming of the Messiah. So any questions about about that? Just a quick little primer on why we believe in a pre-trib rapture. Uh, and it uh, it is not in any way suggesting that somehow we, we won't have to suffer. We definitely won't be on the earth during the great day of the Lord's wrath. But we, as I've said many times, we could already be in a one-world system. And, and we might even be raptured as Chinese citizens. You know, you talk about persecution. Uh, so it's naive and simply not correct to say that uh, pre-tribulationism teaches that Christians won't suffer. So any questions about any of that? Okay, so let's kind of pick up where we left off. For those of you that watched the truncated recording last week, I do want to point out that I was able to kind of patch together enough material that we, we at least gave you the content for the first five verses of Revelation chapter 14 that we looked at. You missed out on a lot of the supplemental discussion and some of the questions and all that, but it's not like you didn't get any of uh, the material. But we've talked about the seal judgments in the past. Uh, the seventh seal judgment opens up seven more judgments called trumpets. And then we talked about the seven trumpet judgments. When the seventh trumpet sounds, it opens up seven more judgments called uh, bowls. And we've, uh, we've gone through those. Then we looked at last week, Revelation 14. We said it's a proleptic, meaning it's an sort of an advanced look, a prefiguring or uh, advanced portrayal of what's going to happen. It's anticipatory. Uh, if you look at our Revelation chart here, all of these things down here uh, in yellow, uh, really all of the thing in the black uh, ink is uh, interludes or supplemental information in the flow of thought. Uh, and we see uh, things like this new Revelation in chapter 10, when John is instructed to eat the scroll and not tell anybody what was on it. So we know there's going to be more things happening during the seven years, even than the Bible tells us about, that only John knew. Uh, we see uh, the two witnesses uh, that are resurrected, or murdered and resurrected. We see the 
beast, uh, the dragon rather, pursuing Israel in chapter 12. And then in chapter 13, it gives us a great deal of information about the beast and the false prophet, the beasts from the sea, they're called. And then uh, chapter 14 is where we are now, which is the prelude to the harvest. So really, 14 and 15 take us up to the bowls. If you look up in the blueprint, the bowls are listed there under Revelation 15 and 16, because chapter 15 is just eight short verses, and it introduces the bowls. Uh, so really, 14 all the way to 16 are sort of the introduction. So we, we talked about last week how in uh, the first five verses, the uh, message is a message to the 144,000 missionaries, who are, by the way, Jewish missionaries, Yet another sign of the Jewish nature of the tribulation. Uh, if the church and Israel are one, why does God revert back to having only Jews be the ones promoting the gospel during the seven years? Because the church is gone, that's why. Uh, but anyway, uh, and he gives them several commendations. We talked about how each one of these is indicated by the pronoun these. These 144,000 who have... Uh, remained faithful throughout the seven years, seen a great harvest of souls by preaching the gospel, are going to be commended at the end of the seven years when uh, Christ comes back. And again, I mentioned last weekend it is on the recording about what, what those commendations uh, were. And then we left off with the 144,000 being described as without fault. And uh, those who have not fallen prey to the greatest deception ever seen on earth. And I, I don't think we talked about it at length, uh, and I know it didn't get recorded, so I want to take the time to, to, just, to really paint a picture in your mind's eye of what this will be like for these 144,000. Sometimes we get the impression, or I did anyway, in reading the story and studying the 144,000 for years, that because they are supernaturally set apart by God and sealed for protection, that somehow they're not subject to the, the same pressures and temptations uh, and persecution that everyone else on earth will be at that time. And when you read the text, what you'd really discover is that their protection simply means that they, they won't be able to be killed. They won't be at the mercy of the beast who will behead any Christian who gets saved after the rapture and refuses the mark of the beast. They will be kept alive for the full seven years to do their mission, which is to spread the gospel. But they're still human beings. So uh, they're still going to face the same kind of pressures that, in a much smaller way, many people today uh, are facing like never before. Uh, I mean, people throughout church history have always faced those critical decision moments where they can either stand firm for the Lord or denounce Him. That's not, that concept is not new. But we're seeing sort of a foreshadowing globally of what that will be like in the tribulation today with the vaccine. And the vaccine is being mandated, being forced. People are being threatened with losing their jobs, threatened they can't have their kids in school, threatened they can't travel, they can't get on a plane, they can't go across you know, into Canada, all kinds of uh, can't go into the hospital to see their sick spouse, that kind of thing. And so people are being faced with a tough uh, decision. And if you are in that category, and I know many, many are, then you can begin to understand on a small way what it would be like for these 144,000, who although they're, they're not going to be martyred, 
still, as human beings, are seeing the one world system unfold rapidly during that seven-year period, seeing the, the global political, religious, and economic system unfurled where everybody has to be accountable to the Antichrist. You can't buy or sell. You can't do anything without uh, the permission of the one world system. And undoubtedly, for many of these 144,000 witnesses, the thought would have crossed their mind that they should buy into the lie that was being told or the lies of the satanic government and, uh, you know, and, and give in. But they didn't. They didn't. And uh, they're commended for that. And they're given special blessing and special honor in the kingdom uh, someday. Uh, and similarly, it's, you know, it's, it's never the loving, godly thing to do to perpetuate a, a lie. And they didn't. They, 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 in their mouth was found no deceit. And churches today, in this present age, can take an application from that, that it's never the loving thing for Christians to do to perpetuate a lie. And churches should never aid and abet the government's evil plans. And, I, you know, I've, I've talked about at length, but it's been a while, the, the whole notion, false notion that, you know, Romans 13 teaches that churches have to bow down and worship the government and do whatever they say. And some people have bought into the lie that the way they interpret Romans 13 is that as long as the government isn't mandating that you sin, you have to obey the government. That there's sort of this neutral mandates and then there's moral mandates. And if the government crosses a moral line, you don't have to do it. But as long as what they're telling you to do is neutral, you have to do it. No matter what, they're in charge. You've got to obey what they say. Well, first of all, Romans 13 doesn't say obey. It says submit. Big difference. It's the same word that is used of uh, wives submitting to husbands in the marriage relationship. And yet clearly we would never suggest that a wife must obey her husband unless the husband is forcing her to sin, right? Nothing sinful about being the victim of beating. I'm not sinning when I'm getting beaten, right? So the husband's not forcing me to sin, so I've got to just sit back and obey and take it, right? That completely misses the point of Romans 13. Romans 13 says that the governments are God's agents for good. And as long as they are fulfilling God's divine design for government, which goes all the way back to Genesis 9, then sure, they're a conduit that's part of God's plan, just as the same way godly parents are used by God for their children, godly spouses are used to help edify and encourage one another in the marriage relationship, Godly pastors and, and elders are used to help uh, advance the institution of the church. God has several divine institutions, family, marriage, the church. And as long as those institutions are functioning according to their divinely, uh, divine design, then, of course, God uses them. But the issue isn't the nature of what the government is asking you to do. The issue is the nature of the government. And when governments are evil... God's people are never expected to obey them. There are plenty of things that North Korea and China as a government does that are not in and of themselves immoral. But does that mean that Chinese citizens have an obligation to bow down and worship at the altar of the atheistic communist Chinese government? Of course not. Of course not. So Romans 13 does not mandate that we as Christians must obey the, the government. It does not give the government the right to tell churches 
who can attend church, how many can attend church, where they can sit, what they can wear, when they can sing, how they can sing, when they can open the doors, when they can close their doors. Government has nothing to do with the church. We're to obey God. Moreover, if you look at church history, you see plenty of examples in Scripture where God's people disobeyed the government because they said we must obey God first. Right? So it's not just about is the government asking us to do something immoral. It's is the government itself functioning as God's divine design? Are they moral? Do they have a biblical worldview or are they corrupt? And while I believe, as I've talked about before, the fingerprints of God are all over uh, this nation and, and God, America has been the greatest nation ever in terms of advancing the gospel and we've done a lot of good, there can be no doubt that uh, inside the beltway there is a corrupt Luciferian agenda that is, achieve, is furthering a, a satanic agenda that is not godly. And uh, it is no longer the case that we can say that, you know, oh, our politicians are God-fearing Christians. I mean, find one. Find me one. Find one Republican or congressman that is blatantly speaking out against the experimental bioinjection that's killing millions of people. Here's some that are talking about the mandates. Well, great. That, I'm glad you don't like the mandates, but let's talk about the actual death shot that's killing people. Are you going to be bold enough to stand up to Big Pharma? Are you going to be bold enough to speak out about that? Or are you just going to sit by and let it, let it go? So there's, they're all bought and paid for. And, uh, and, and again, I don't have the time to make that case now, but if you watch uh, Spirit of the Antichrist or to some extent What in the World is Going On, those series that we've done in the last year or two, uh, I, I give you the evidence, show you the quotes in their own words. And that article that I mentioned uh, at the outset touch, gives you just a sampling of some of the uh, statements in their own words. So what was going on during this seven-year period? Well, it was the fulfillment of what we see attempting to happen now, and that is transhumanism. The 144,000 did not go around repeating the lies that had been pouring forth from the one-world government leaders. Sound familiar? Uh, and so they resisted the transhumanist agenda to build back better and create new human beings. Transhumanism, as you know, is the merging of man and machine. Uh, it's a playing with the creative process to try to create human 2.0 that is both that is part biological, part chemical, part technological, and part uh, you know uh, machine really. Uh, and we we've seen this. It's a direct attack on the image of God and man. And these 144,000 understood that it was evil, and they went around providing hope about the only way that anyone can ha hope to have life restored into a right relationship with God. And there's no question that the image of God in man has been corrupted, and transhumanists and Satanists are trying to corrupt it even more. And they've been doing that for 6,000 years, and it's really coming to a head. But the 144,000 were preaching that if you believe the gospel, you can be made right with God, the image of God in man can be restored, and you can have peace with God. That was their that was their test. So they were they were combating everything that these this one world system was doing. Now it, we see clearly the lead up to that today. We're not in the tribulation, but we see because the peace treaty hasn't been signed yet, and the church is still here. Uh, but uh, Klaus Schwab, that uh, leading Satanist himself, is uh, advancing this techno tyranny. He said, "Quote: The fourth industrial revolution, often called the four IR, will affect the." very essence of our human 
experience. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, he means, quote, this is another quote, the mind-boggling innovations triggered by the fourth industrial revolution from biotechnology to artificial intelligence are, quote, redefining what it means to be human. This is their words. They are trying to play with the creative process. Remember, Satan has conquered most of the frontiers that we read about in the creation account. He's conquered language. You know, words mean nothing anymore. You can make words mean whatever you want. He's conquered marriage. Marriage means nothing. There's no sanctity of marriage anymore. He's conquered gender, yet God said male and female he created us, and, and Satan has destroyed gender. So the only frontier really left that he has been striving to conquer is the creative process. Now, this isn't a new venture for him. He tried this all the way back in Genesis 6 when he, the fallen angels, demons, tried to cohabit with human women to create a new race of hybrids called the Nephilim and, uh, and, and corrupt the gene pool. Uh, but that was the best he could do back then. Now, 6,000 years later, with advancements in technology and all kinds of things, he's creating, trying anyway, to create humanity or some version of it in the laboratory. Human 2.0, that's their words. Listen to what he says. Another quote. The future will challenge our understanding of what it means to be human from both a biological and a social standpoint. Now, if you read, this is from his book uh, on the fourth IR, and also he has, says this, touches on the same subject in his book, uh, COVID-19, The Great Reset. That's what COVID-19 was all about, in case you missed it. They said so. I've been planning it for 22 years. Um, but what, what does he mean by from both a biological and a social standpoint? Well, biologically, our very makeup is going to be different. We're now going to have spike proteins and other delivery systems running through our body that can be subsequently implanted with computer chips to make us think certain things, to read our minds, to do what they want us to do, to control us. So our very biological nature will change. But notice he says also from a social standpoint, what he's talking about there is that right now we believe in the dignity of human life, the sanctity of human life, inalienable rights and freedoms of human beings. Does that sound familiar? That's why I say the fingerprints of God were all over the beginning of this country, even though many of the New World Orders that came over to establish the New World uh, were Satan-worshipping Freemasons and people like that. They had an agenda. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't an undercurrent of God-fearing, uh, puritanical, Bible-believing people that understood sanctity of life. And so they're not mutually exclusive. So you see references among the founding fathers, in spite of who they were in some cases, to this inalienable rights of a creator. So socially, we understand that, you know, according to Scripture, we are accountable first and foremost to God, that we have certain freedoms and certain rights. But according to this transhumanist satanic agenda, they're going to challenge that. Now you're just going to be classified as useful in one way or another, and if not, you're going to be killed. That's why they want to kill most of the people in the world. They want to get the population down to 500 million, of which two-thirds will be worker bees that just do what they're told. They don't have any freedoms. They've changed their standpoint completely socially. And the one-third will be the elite, the ruling class. 
So that's their plan. It's right, right in all of their writings. Another quote, he says, Already advances in neurotechnologies and biotechnologies are forcing us to question what it means to be human. See, nobody's, very few people are exposing this agenda. And we need to take it serious that they, Satan has a plan. Satan has been trying to take over the earth since he got kicked out of heaven. It's his playground. It's his domain. And uh, according to Scripture, he will succeed for one seven-year period. Remember that, uh, that uh, tribulation, the first three and a half years, will include a time of you know, relative, for lack of a better word, relative peace. Here we go. Uh, where he signs the treaty. There's chaos, chaos ensues after the rapture. All kinds of battles take place. I get into that in the book with the sequential order of end times events. But eventually things, although there's all kinds of destruction and chaos and the world has changed forever, it's some sense of the new normal comes back into place when the Antichrist takes the helm of this one world system at the beginning of the seven-year period, what you see in yellow there. And for the first three and a half years, uh, even though there's going to be some cosmic judgments of God being poured out and there's going to be some crazy things happening, he will be a one-world ruler that is largely benevolent, especially as it relates to Israel. But it's at the midpoint, what Jesus called and Daniel referred to as the abomination of desolation, that he breaks the treaty, declares himself to be not only the one-world ruler, but God himself. I am God, worship me. I have finally achieved this final step of divinity. And if you don't worship me and take the mark, you're going to be killed. So, uh, you know, this, this is what they're, they're leading up to. And what, getting back to the text, and then we'll close it out here and take some questions. Essentially, what he was saying is, well done. These 144,000 lived during the most horrific time in human history. They served their purpose. They fulfilled their mission. And now Christ is coming back, and they're going to be commended for it. So this is a good stopping point. So any questions about anything we've talked about so far? Yeah. So there's the Roe versus Wade debate going into now to the chief justices and that kind of stuff. I read an article where it's not really about Roe versus Wade. It is about defining what is human, when does life start. And that sounds to me a lot like what we're studying here. Yeah, I, I want to comment on the, the Supreme Court case that's apparently already been decided, but they won't announce the ruling until June. Uh, they're, they're writing up the arguments. Um, so uh, your comment was that as believers, we know that the ultimate issue comes down to when does life begin? What is life? And I do not believe that and that's correct, of course. Uh, but I do not believe that this ruling, however it comes down, even if it comes down at face value just to be a favorable view, which I highly think is unlikely, but even if it did, it, still miss, it will still miss the point. Because the best we can hope for is that they kick it back to the states, and the states have always had control, and the states have done nothing. Some have, but in, in most cases that still... It, it doesn't address the core issue. It'll say, well, abortion is illegal except in the cases of rape, incest, and life of mother. 
And when we allow ourselves to, to accept that argument, we are playing right into the hands of, of the devil because we are implying that there are certain lives that are not valuable. And the Bible teaches all life is valuable. doesn't man, matter the circumstances under which it began. Life begins at conception. David said, from the moment of my conception, I was a human being in sin and needed a Savior. And so it doesn't matter how bad the circumstances are. God's Word addresses that. Bad circumstances don't give you the right to kill people. If it's an innocent human being, and it is, then it doesn't, all of that other matters. It's all a smokescreen. It's all a distraction. And we don't need to fall prey into that trap. Uh, when does life begin? It begins at conception. So I, I think uh, it is an interesting, from a spiritual perspective, observation that at such a time as this, we see for the first time in, what, 50 years, a, you know, a more attention being given to this issue of the sanctity of life by the high court, while at the same time the Luciferians are out there trying to create life and downplay life and kill life and act like it's useless and you know, doing the same thing they've been doing in the eugenics movement for centuries. Uh, I think that's interesting, and I think it's just one more indication that time is short, that we're reaching a climax, but I'm not... Uh, getting all excited about a Supreme Court that is bought and paid for, completely controlled by the Luciferians, and putting all my hope uh, in, in what they're going to come, uh, come down to. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Well, it's also control. They don't yeah, that's right. She said it's about control. They don't want the states to have control. They want the mothership, the government, to have, have control. Yeah, I think that's ultimately what it's about. The United States is just a microcosm of the Luciferian agenda globally. In fact, it's really the seat of it. Many of the key Luciferian components emanate from New York City and Washington, D.C. Uh, but you're right. They, they do not believe in national sovereignty and in the same way that globally national sovereign states are a threat to them, in the United States, individual states, it's strange because state is used in terms of a nationalism as well as our local states in the United States, but in the United States, the federal government doesn't want to give up any control to local states. So I'm not suggesting that there aren't uh, godly people out there in positions of leadership in certain governmental positions that believe life begins at conception and are fighting hard for that, but not at the federal level and, and very seldom at the state level and very few, how many, you know, if there are any, they're very few. Uh, it's about when does life begin. Uh, we don't, we don't, uh, the ends don't justify the means, you know. We want to, we want to, every single life is valuable, and we don't get to pick and choose which ones we're going to save. Yeah. Uh, uh, go ahead. Paul? Well, well, it's a little bit off the, the subject, but uh, you mentioned three uh, things that were going to be with Christ. The, yeah, in the Israel, kingdom. Israel, the church, and the nations. Right. Talk a little bit about the nations, and who, are they different from the church, and Yes. So, great question. Uh, the three groups that will be in perpetuity in the kingdom when time shall be no more are the church, Israel, and the nations. 
So let's talk about the first two first. The church is the easiest to define. The church is limited to everybody who got saved, believed in Christ, from the day of Pentecost until the rapture. It's a unique body of Jew and Gentile baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. Old Testament saints do not experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Saints in the tribulation and millennium don't experience that. It's unique to us. So that one's pretty easy to define. The Jews are also easy to define. It's any Jewish believer. Remember, the, the seed of Abraham has both a, a genetic aspect, a natural aspect, and a spiritual aspect. Unbelieving Jews are in hell, and those who die later in unbelief will be in hell, just like every human being. Jews don't get an automatic pass into the kingdom just because they're Jews. They, like everyone, have to believe. Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, believed and was therefore justified. So if you think, for example, in history, uh, all the Jewish people who died on the banks of the Jordan after 40 years because they had, had unbelief and not, not been faithful, among that group, some went to heaven, some went to hell. It depends whether individually they trusted Christ. That's always the case. But a Jewish believer, someone who traces their lineage all the way back to Abraham and believes, will always be a Jew uh, in the kingdom. That is, those who are not part of the church. So up until the rapture, anybody who, uh, I mean, up until the establishment of the church, anybody that got saved, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, all the Old Testament saints, men and women of the, of the faith, they're part of the Jewish people in the kingdom. So that's the church and the Jews. The same thing will be true after the rapture. Jewish people, like the 144,000, for example, who believed and then became missionaries, they're going to be part of the Jewish nation in the kingdom. And that nation has a particular job to do. Christ will reign from the rebuilt temple, uh, according to Ezekiel, in uh, the kingdom. So Jews are uh, the, the Jews who believed prior to the church and after the church. Make sense? Then that leaves the third category, the nations. The nations is everybody else that's a believer. Anybody who got saved prior to the church but wasn't a Jew, and anybody that got saved after the rapture during the tribulation or during the millennium but wasn't a Jew. That constitutes the nations. They're not part of the church. Okay, make sense? Very important to keep those distinctions because the Bible has a different role to play for each one of those, uh, each one of those groups. So. All right, well, we're out of time. We'll pick it up next Sunday. Great to be back. Great to be uh, with our home church and, and uh, studying the Word together. And we'll kick off our service uh, here uh, in the room at about 10 o'clock. For those of you live streaming, the live stream kicks on usually about 10, 25-ish, give or take five minutes. So kind of be on standby, and we'll come back uh, here at about 10, 25 or so mountain time.